Hear now the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then jumping to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Since the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help in these next few minutes. Jesus, would you help us in these next few minutes to hear what uh, you would have to say to us as you would encounter us in a uh, a special way through both the hearing, the, the praying about your word, and then even in the sermon, as we consider this last descriptor of who you are as God, maker of heaven and earth, we pray that we would not take for granted the things that we already know or think we know, but instead would come to be discipled by you and by your spirit and with one another as a church family that we might be equipped, that we might be encouraged in our life of prayer, in our life of devotion, taking up our cross and following you and serving others in this world which you have made. And we pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a theologian in Australia I like to read named Ben Myers, and he, in in commenting um, about this era, the second century, he said... um, And this was when the Apostles' Creed was crafted. He said, Christian teachers struggled in the second century to really articulate, to to define their beliefs and commitments in opposition to what was popular at the time, uh, the popular rival teachings, because the prevailing cultural mood at the time that the Apostles' Creed was written was, well, pessimism, deep spiritual pessimism. Members of the educated class took it for granted that the physical world, this stuff right here, was inherently evil. And it was unredeemable. And so they yearned to escape from this world of flesh and stuff and to experience spiritual enlightenment away from the world. There was also going on in the second century a very fatalistic view about how the events of history and everyday life unfolded. See, it was very much what we would maybe call in our age a social Darwinism. It was very much a dog-eat-dog world. Those with power and riches exerted control and manipulation over those without. And that was just the way it was, and that was the way it was always going to be. So if you were a slave, you were subject to be controlled by your owners. That's just the way it was. If you were weak, then you were weak for the sake of the strong who could use you, take advantage of you. And there was no common shared view 
of inherent dignity or any sense of common human rights that was held by everyone. Our own age here in the 21st century is also one in which Christian teachers, pastors, all Christians really are struggling to communicate our beliefs in a way that connects with our neighbors. And I think it particularly lands in areas that have to do with gender, with race, sexuality, with marriage, and even with class, who has what. And it's not just the culture that's pessimistic, but I think, at least in my experience, especially having just come from our own general assembly, that it's Christians who are somewhat pessimistic, that the, that the church is pessimistic. And I think that this pessimism that sometimes that we express, at least here in America, is fed by the changing circumstances, which I know that we have all experienced, especially culturally. Because in the U.S., it used to be, it seemed, a, there, there was a shared sense of cultural order that folks kind of believed the same basic things, that folks kind of acted the same basic way. But now, really over the last 30, excuse me, 30 years, the ground has moved right under our feet. We're trying to get our footing. What is it that we're supposed to do? And as Christians, we're trying to figure out not just what are we supposed to do, but what are we supposed to say? What should we have said? What should we have done? What are our resources for witnessing to Christ and for our, most importantly, our mission for Christ? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning from Scripture that one good tool in our kit for thinking about how to serve in the world and how to bear witness for Christ in the world is creation. The confession, an explanation from Scripture that God, the Father Almighty, is maker of heaven and earth. Now, why would I say that? Well, there's a lot. As I was putting together the sermon, I was like, man, I could almost go anywhere because when you're talking about creation, you're talking about everything. You can go a lot of different places. So I'm just going to say up front, I maybe won't cover what you think I should cover, but I'm I'm trying to cover at least some things that I think are important, especially for us as we think about serving in the world. I think there are a couple of key things going on that we need to understand and appropriate in our prayer life when we say that God is maker. And the first one is this. When we say God is maker, we are saying that He is the source of all things. That God has no partners. That there is nothing equal in existence or experience to God. Put it another way, He made all things that exist, visible and invisible, on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. So whether that's angels, or quarks, or grasshoppers, or demons, or gluons, or plastic, or whatever, before God created... There was only God. He made everything. No one or nothing else helped him. He is the source of life. That's part of what we mean when we say that he is Father. Now again, to kind of take us back to what the original context of the creed, the prevailing take on reality at the time that this was written was that the universe, the material universe, had just always existed. That there was no creator God or that the gods didn't really make it, but they just kind of 
used what would always been there, that the stuff of the universe, whether it had been water or dirt or whatever, had just always been there. And these gods just kind of intervened in these things for their own pleasure because the gods being what? Well, they're the, the biggest, the richest, the most elite players on the stage of reality. But the idea was everything, the universe had just always been there. The stuff of creation, hydrogen, carbon, whatever, that's the way we would put it today, had just always existed. It just always been there. So, for example, some of you are old enough, or maybe have seen in reruns, there was a show that came on PBS, I think in the 80s, 70s, late 70s, a guy named Carl Sagan, who was a philosopher. The show was called Cosmos, and he said, The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. And philosophers like Thales of Miletus and Aristotle, who had lived thousands of years before him, would say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Big deal. So what? I mean, everyone knows that. That's just kind of their worldview at the time. But you see, think about that. That position, that would make the world in the universe, all the universes, however many universes there are, everything that God had created, like an eternally flowing river or current. No beginning, no end. All that is, just is, as it is. This is important, and that means we would have no grounds for judging one thing to be good or bad, something to be good or evil. Death is just a part of life, and there is no vantage point or perspective outside of the cosmos that could, cha- that, that, that could change anything or would help us to spiritually assess what we have or why we should care one way or another about things like ethics or truth or God, or any of that stuff. So that's where they were. A little bit where we are now. But then something amazing happened in the history of time. With the Hebrew Bible and the beautiful passages that we had, just a few of the beautiful passages that we heard read earlier. And then again, in the New Testament scriptures, a completely different view of God and reality is presented. One that makes the world meaningful now makes it directed, makes it shot through with purpose. Because what does Scripture say? It says this, that God, as Almighty, was and is completely free and completely satisfied in Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. And in fact, the divine persons shared love eternally and completely, according to John 17. And yet... Out of love, out of a desire, not of incompletion, not out of a sense of neediness or loneliness on God's part, but because the cup of his love, like the psalm says, runneth over, God created from nothing. God created everything. Why? To share his love, to communicate knowledge of himself, to give life As a gift. You see, life isn't just simply organic or natural. It is a divine gift. And that's what God did. And by the way, since I won't be with you uh, talking about the creed going forward, every the, the creed just highlights for us the very movement of God. And every movement of God, which is really what the creed is showing us here, is God drawing near in love and devotion to those which are not him, and drawing near to those who are not like him 
increasingly closer and closer. So he makes something out of nothing. So he creates. And then he comes and dwells amongst a people who are not like him in the incarnation. And then he actually inhabits them and allows them to inhabit him. How? By the Holy Spirit. And that's what we get in the creed. Creation, Son, Holy Spirit. So the world was created in love. It was created, it was made by a maker who is outside of and not part of the world. It is made by someone who is in control and not captive to the world. What else? Well, that, if that's the first thing, here's the second thing. And this is really the most important and where we're going to kind of steer the ship for the rest of our time. And it's important to hear because I don't know if we always believe it as we think about our own struggles in this world. And it's this, God created everything good. God created everything good. See, in Genesis 1, we are told repeatedly that in creating all that exists, it was, and let me drop a little Hebrew on you, tov meod. It was very good. God's intent and accomplishment in creating was to display His glory, His wisdom, His joy, and His love. It's like what the the poet Hopkins said. It says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like the shining of shook foil. Mm. filled with the grandeur of God. See, the Bible highlights that the physical world is not inherently evil and not irredeemable. The world, and hear me on this, the world and its cultural products don't need to be escaped. The world of the flesh and created matter is good. A good God created a good world. The upshot of this also is that evil cannot be attributed to the Creator. And that's another sermon for another time. But sometimes you hear folks say, and it's almost like, uh, you know, my, my daughters, uh, one of my daughters in particular, whenever I'll get on to her about something, she'll say, well, you and mom made me. I'm like this because of the way you made me. I'm just a product of y'all. And sometimes we will kind of get up on our hind legs and say the same thing about God. Well, we're just like this because God made us like this and it's kind of a flawed design. So what do you expect? But that's not the take of Scripture. God's gift is good. The material world is good. And for us not to recognize it is a little bit like what uh, one saint said, Gregory of Nyssa. He said, if a man in broad daylight freely chooses to shut his eyes, it's not the son's fault when he fails to see it. And what we should see is that all that God made is good. Now, granted, you can read places in, in Scripture where it says the creation And by creation, again, it's just us, people, nature, all things have been affected by sin. So Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 20, it says that creation was subject to futility. Then in 21, that it is in bondage to corruption. We know that. We feel that. The world has been corrupted and distorted. But that is not what it is by nature, by design, by purpose. God created us and the world good. And in fact, it is headed back that way by redemption through Christ. See, another way to think of it is this. It is a sick world that needs healing, not an evil world that needs destruction. That's the difference between Christianity and the other views that were being opposed in the second century and maybe even in the 21st century. And this is good to remember as we think about the goodness of the world because Christians, of all people, are very easily led into errors and false teaching of rejecting the world. 
How do I know? Because we have examples of this in the Bible. I'll just read to you 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul giving an admonition to a fellow pastor. He says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. That's heavy-duty language right there. Will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. All right, well, what are you doing if this is something that is the teaching of demons? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. All right, hold on now. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy By the word of God and prayer. Now there's a little Bible for you right there. That will preach. That will read. You see, Paul actually calls this forbidding of good earthy things satanic. Satanism. The doctrine of demons. When I was in college... I resonated with this a little bit, not because I was satanic, but because I was oppressed by it, right? When I was in college, so much of what passed for Christian spirituality had to do with the forbidding of good things. You know, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew or go with those who do. And it was about don't drink beer, listen to the right kinds of music. And in my case, I was scorned because of my major, which was philosophy, It was like that then, it was like that in the first century, and y'all, it's like that now. I think it'd be worth our time to consider God's goodness and what He has made, both in nature and through humankind and culture. Because it's an antidote to a kind of legalism that would suggest that we are righteous, that we are more spiritual, that we are closer closer to God because of what we do eat, Or what we don't eat, how we do or we don't care for our bodies. You just think about what are the things that come up on Twitter or on Instagram. It's highlighting what you do or don't eat, whether you do CrossFit or not, or any of those number of things. We're always wrestling with this and putting ourselves, aligning righteousness with what we do or don't do. And that is good fodder for maybe a later conversation about God creating things and creating them good. But I do want to mention one thing just by way of application for us as a denomination and and for us as a congregation. And that is this, that just as forbidding marriage was the issue of the day for Paul in that passage that I just read from uh, 2 Timothy 4, there can also be in our circles the opposite kind of problem, but for the same reasons, which is to to denigrate the creational goodness of people who are single. Who are not married. See, marriage is great if you are called to it, but not everyone is called to it in their walk with Christ. Let me give you an example Christ. (laughs) Jesus definitely wasn't called to marriage. Paul, as best as we could tell, never married. Or if he was, by the time we catch up to him in the New Testament, he is not married any longer. So if you are single, you are not incomplete. You are not unfaithful. You are not failing to fill the earth if you don't get married. You are whole as you are. 
You are complete now. You are good as God made you. And you are vital to the health and successful mission of Christ's body in the church. Full stop. Period. There is nothing wrong with you. You are not a puzzle that is missing a piece. You are not a yin without a yang, if I can say that. You are a whole image bearer and are needed and valued. And not just as a foil for the lives of married people. But you are needed as a leader, as a teacher, as a model of grace. And of the presence of the Holy Spirit in power in our midst. And as congregations, I want to say this, especially in light of our General Assembly, as congregations, we especially have to make room and value the singles among us, especially those of them who are same-sex attracted or who are gay and following Christ in sexual chastity and obedience to the biblical ethic. We have to do that. That is required of us in Christ. So those of us with spouses and children should be willing to be grafted into the lives of single saints, to learn from them, to enjoy them, to be a family with them. In fact, since I'm up here, the New Testament, while it doesn't do away with the nuclear family, it doesn't privilege or prioritize it. Again, especially if you look at the teaching of Jesus. You remember that scene in Mark chapter 3 where he is teaching to a a group of his followers and his family are just deathly embarrassed by him. And so they want to pull him out because they're going to be, they're actually afraid that people are going to think he is crazy. And so his family goes in there, his sisters and his mother and brothers, to pull him out. And the crowd around him says, hey, Jesus, your family's trying to get you out of here because they think you've lost it. And he's like, no, 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 y'all. You want to know who my family is? My brothers and my sisters and my mother are y'all. The church is y'all. The family of God is the congregation. It's another sermon for another time, but it is worth thinking about. Now, the last thing about God is maker of heaven and earth. By affirming the inherent and intentional goodness of everything that is made, the cosmos, the world, people, we have leverage, and this is important, Because it gets into the issues of right and wrong and biblical faithfulness. We have leverage to look at injustice, to look at evil, to look at brokenness and the impact of sin now. And imagine and work for change. You see, as Christians, we know that right now, as the theologian Cornelius Plantinga put it in his book, things are not the way they are supposed to be. We live in a good world with good people, image bearers that have been stained by the ruin of sin, that have been stained by rebellion against God. But we also know, don't we, that God entered into the world in Jesus to justify, to set to rights the world and people in it. So we are not locked into seeing the world as it is now. Laden with injustice. Pulled down by the wreckage of disease. Closed in by the darkness of anxiety. Environmental ruin. And just give up. To just be passive in the presence of evil and not strive to see thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven would be a kind of escapism. Fatalism. The Scripture doesn't teach and doesn't permit for us. 
You see, just because Jesus is coming back and we hold on to that truth and we look for it and it anchors our souls and it animates us day to day that Jesus is coming back. But just because he's coming back, we don't say, well, look, yeah, the world's unjust. It's all getting ruined. It's all going to burn anyway. So what's the point of caring? That is false teaching. That is a version of the doctrine of demons that Paul says you just can't do. The hymn says, this is our father's world. In a real sense, we should be at home in the world. We protest against the disagreeable parts of life. We want peace. We want justice. We want to care for the weak. We want to care for the oppressed. We want to care for the voiceless. That is the work of Christians. And we support and give ourselves to what is noble, to what is beautiful and enduring and hopeful. Those things which are glimpses of eternity. Beautiful things. Like whether it's the beauty that's evidenced in sports or music or just joyful times sitting around a fire drinking beer. Those are all the things that we affirm and that we just want to keep flowing. Give me another word. Just cause it to rise up. You see, the followers of Jesus, that's us, believe that in Him... In Him, we have encountered the enabling source of creation, of truth, of justice, of goodness. We have come to know the One through whom all things were made. And Looking into the face of Jesus, and if you are here this morning and know Him, you have looked into His face. We have seen the blueprint of reality. And we have come to understand God's good plan for the whole of creation. His creation. Won't you look to Him? Won't you look back to Him? Let's pray.